If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, that's where we're going to be jumping in this morning. Uh, I don't know how many of you have been keeping up with the news this last week or so, so I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to talk about some headlines right quick while the kids are looking for uh, all the bingo pictures that are hidden in this slide. Um, I guess it's in the next slide. Most li- there they are. All right, so uh, kids, look for those, look for those. How many of you have heard about a young lady whose name I may be mispronouncing, Gabby Petito, and her missing fiancé? Most of us have heard of uh, missing fiancé. Um, for some reason, that's the main thing that's been coming across my news stream at this time. How many of you have heard about the crisis at the southern border and the mass deportation of, of Haitian refugees by the U.S. and by Mexico? Many of us have heard of that. Okay, now... How many of you have heard of the Baptist youth pastor who was murdered in Myanmar by the military uh, for trying to help one of the congregants in his church put the fire out in the house? You heard of that? One person? How many of you have seen or heard on any national network, any, any national news network, anything about Christians in Afghanistan? One. Two. Three, all right. That's more than I was expecting, honestly. It's been estimated that there are 10 to 12,000 Afghan Christians, like still in Afghanistan, which is, um, it's less than 1% of a country that's 99% Muslim. And there have been multiple missions organizations that, that have uh, you know, been working to get these brothers and sisters out of the country. Um, but but the, in, in the indigenous believers have almost all either completely cut off contact, they are, they are throwing away their phones, you know, just completely cutting off contact because um, they've gone into hiding or else they fled the country. And the Taliban is going door to door in many of these places, you probably know this, they're checking to see if inhabitants in the homes are faithful to Islam or not. And since, since Christians are considered apostates by, the, by fundamental Islamists, they run the risk of being murdered on the spot if exposed. And some of that is happening. And based on some of the reports that we've gotten back, those who are immediately killed are definitely better off than those who are not. And this is what's been going on uh, the, the past month or so. Um, and our, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ are, are going through these things, and our news cycle has kind of moved on, and so our attention has kind of moved on too. And I hope we're still praying for them. I really hope that we are still in prayer for those brothers and sisters because as awful as what's happening over there, it, it's, it's over there. And so sometimes we forget. We don't always remember to lift them up. But church, they need our prayers. Please pray for them. And pray for other believers in areas that are, that are hostile to the Christian faith. Uh, the Afghanis are obviously not the first Christian martyrs to die for Jesus. Certainly won't be the last either. And this, this last week, we, we did look at the story. We looked at the story in Acts chapter 7 of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He was stoned to death by an angry mob. Um, you know, these are people that, that he forgave even as they murdered him, which is just beautiful. Including one guy, one guy that was there who was a part of that, who is going to become really famous in church history. Who is that? Saul of Tarsus, right? Our section opens today with... And Saul approved of his execution. Of course, that's referring to Stephen's execution. Uh, I'm not sure why this little sentence was put at the beginning of, of chapter 8. 
when it really seems to fit better at the end of chapter 7, but I guess the monk who divided the Bible up into chapter and verse may have just liked it that way. I don't know. You probably know this, but chapter and verse, that is not in the original text, <laughs> okay? That's been added by uh, people who, you know, feel that it, it divides the Bible up in such a way that it's easier to memorize and that it goes together a certain way. But uh, anyway, in any case, Saul got his, his first taste of martyr blood at the stoning of Stephen, okay? And we learn later that he, he says it himself. He was a Pharisee. He's probably a young guy at this time. Um, and, and he was very passionate, very zealous about keeping Judaism pure. And so his debut in the book of Acts was near the end of the last week's text, and he's going to show up a lot more often because he has a, a pretty major role, right? A pretty strong presence in the early church, um, but at first, though, he was, he was 100% hostile to the gospel message. We're going to see some examples of that as we continue. Um, and by the way, if you're wondering why this sermon borrows um, the title of a Charles Dickens novel, the answer is, is simple. Our passage today deals with two different cities, okay? And it deals with what happened in each city with regard to the gospel message at, at that particular point in time, all right, that this, was, that this was taking place. So the first is the place where Stephen was executed, which was where? Jerusalem, thank you, yes, okay? From two words that mean they will see and completeness. That's where Jerusalem comes from, okay? It's a telling name, right? Um, does anybody remember what Jerusalem is frequently called in the Bible? Called the city of David, true? That's, that's one, yeah, so, is, so is Bethlehem, what else? Zion, yes sir. It's called the holy city, in a lot of different places. Why was it called those things? That's it, because it was where the temple is. Thank you. Man, Terry's not even here today, and you guys are speaking up. Thank you. It's great. We miss you, Terry. Love you. And Lloyd, too. Um, but mostly Terry. No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Okay, we miss you guys. Um, anyway, so it was because the temple was there. Uh, and more importantly, the Lord's presence was said to be physically located inside the Holy of Holies in the inner temple. And, and why did God choose to make that his dwelling place? Because the temple and the city and the land that it was actually located on, they were all part of the promise that God made all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. To whom? Abram. Abram who became the first what? Yeah. Jew. Who said that? Yes, he was the first patriarch also. That's true. Did you say that? Nice job, you two. This, this is the holy family. Strive to be like that. No, I'm kidding. This, <laughs> no, the, the, exactly. He was the first He was the first patriarch. He was the first Jew. Okay? And the reason he was the Jew was because God uh, came to him specifically. He was justified by faith, and he was the first person to ever practice circumcision, which was, again, given by God. The Jews, okay, who, who were the Jews? They were God's people in the Old Testament. They were the ones who received nearly all of what we would call specific revelation. There were a few one-offs in Old Testament, but they got almost all of, of what, what we refer to as specific revelation from God. So to clarify that, okay, uh, general revelation is everything that we can know about God from creation. You read Romans 1, it talks about this. It, it's his revealed power, his revealed, his character, as it's shown through what's been made, okay? Including, uh, including the mind and the conscience that are part of humanity. That goes kind of into Romans 2. Because we are made in the image of God. But specific revelation, however, that comes in the form, or came in the form, of God's revelation of himself 
in signs and in miracles, but even more clearly through his word, whether written or spoken or incarnate, right? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. The glory is of the one and only Father, full of grace and truth. Anytime somebody tells you the Bible is the only perfect word of God, say, what about Jesus? <laughs> because in the Bible, he is called the word. Okay? Now, when we're referring to the canon, talking about specific revelation from God, yes, the Bible, what we got. Okay? We talked about that a little bit this morning in Sunday school. Um, there's a re In fact, man, boy, I'm, I'm getting a little off subject here, but I'm really looking forward to when Craig comes in and teaches my class about, uh, about where the Bible came from. It's so good. The Bible is so incredibly reliable. It's so trustworthy. It's so truth-filled. It's so good. It's so authoritative. He gave us this amazing gift. And how often do we read it? How often do we memorize it? Anyway, back to this. Um, so, the Jews were God's people. Okay, the Jews, the nation of Israel, they were given all of these blessings. The miracles, the signs, the revelation through the word. And they were given all of these things to keep their faith in God living and active. But it, but it was also in Jerusalem, Jesus himself pointed this out, that nearly all of the Old Testament prophets were killed for, for proclaiming the word. For speaking on behalf of God. That's where they were killed. Most of them were killed in Jerusalem. And this, this dichotomy is very present. It's very obvious in today's passage. So uh, Acts 8 continues by saying, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Okay, I feel like, like this short narrative can kind of be encapsulated in the first sentence. There arose a great persecution against the church. And then nearly everything else in this passage is elaborating on that. So Remember that up until this moment, the description of how people outside the church related to the church was very positive, right? I mean, in chapter 2, we see that it says they enjoyed favor with all of the people. And chapter 5 says the apostles were held in great esteem by everyone. So, so with the exception of the apostles actually themselves being arrested three times and beaten once, the church still had, had been very widely regarded as, as a good thing, right? But often, uh, it only takes one little catalyst to set off a big change. You know, and the martyrdom of Stephen was, was like a fuse for this, this sudden wave of persecution against the church. And by the way, I want to, I want to talk really quickly about the word persecution. Okay, I looked it up online to give uh, a better definition than I would probably come up with. And it said, harassing or oppressive treatment especially the infliction of injury as loss of property or civil rights, physical suffering or death, as a punishment for adhering to some opinion or course of conduct, as a religious creed or a mode of worship, which cannot properly be regarded as criminal. So in other words, harming someone else because of their faith. Okay? And I remember as a young boy, we would leave uh, Valley View Christian Church, and right there, cat a corner of the church, was this, on the way home, there was this, this sign on this property, and it was a big red and white sign that said, no trespassing, violators will be prosecuted. 
And when I was a young boy, I saw that and I was like, whoa, because I thought they meant persecuted. <laughs> and I thought they were going to like round up the people and, and, you know, and be killed for jumping a fence. Okay, don't conflate the two. <laughs> don't mistake persecuted for prosecuted. They are not the same thing. But the religious persecution in the church was only just beginning. This is just a few months after the church has, has seen this huge increase in numerical growth. You know, disciples being made left and right. So, the following points, they, they, they do touch on the rest of the paragraph here. Um, they're in connection with the persecution, and they all seem to be fairly well-reflected or well-represented today in areas that are hostile toward Christianity. Okay, so first of all, believers are scattered. And as backwards as it may feel to us, persecution is actually one of the ways that God causes his church to spread geographically. A while back, uh, Rebecca Pippert wrote a book on evangelism that I was supposed to read in college and probably didn't, um, called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. And the premise was that salt doesn't do any good to the world or to anything if it's only in the shaker, right? I mean, church, consider something that God often does, or at least allows in his sovereign wisdom. Sometimes with our church culture and with our, our propensity to spend all of our time with other Christians, we are more like salt in the shaker than the salt of the earth, right? And, and I, I, used to, I used to work in a restaurant. Um, some of you heard me talk about that before. I did some room service and some waiting tables. And I've learned if salt is not consistently poured out and refilled, it gets moisture from the air. And what happens to it, you know? It gets clumped up. It turns into rock again, like inside the shaker, and then it's not good for anything. Because if the salt gets clumped, you know, if you've ever seen little grains of rice, I know it freaks you out because you're like, are those larvae? No, <laughs> sometimes you see grains of rice in salt shakers. That's there to keep the moisture out, okay? Um, if the salt gets clumped up, it's ruined. It's useless at that point. It has to be, it has to be washed out, and then the, the shaker has to be dried and refilled. And, and Salt, guys, here's the thing. Salt does not need to preserve and flavor itself. It is already preserved. It is already flavorful, okay? Salt, it, it needs to season things that are bland, and it needs to preserve things that will rot. The world needs the salt of faithful Christians. The world needs us. Anyway, we'll come back to that later. Let's keep going. Notice that as, as the vast majority of Christians relocate when persecution begins, the apostles stick around, which goes to show that, that sometimes leaders have to stay in the danger zone. Now, this, this is not uh, universal in application because we've seen in Scripture there are times uh, where Paul or the other apostles, they're led to leave an area when persecution ramps up. But it does seem to be common, okay? Not only in Scripture, but in practice today. The leaders of the church are usually the first ones to experience persecution, and they're also, they're also the ones that often choose to stay behind in the face of persecution so that their public witness might affect people who are still local. That goes both for believers and for unbelievers, okay? Now, sometimes church leaders stay uh, local, and they do so in an underground way, and that may have been what was going on here. We don't know for sure, but um, they probably weren't meeting daily in the temple and the synagogues like they were before, but they were certainly engaged in sharing the truth. And they would have had a, a strategic campaign going to keep believers in the faith and, and to circulate you know, the letters and the other things to the scattered church. So I, I think this is a legitimate assumption because we see the same type of things going on today in Afghanistan. You know, many of the Christians have fled to the mountains, right? But, but some of the pastors have chosen to stay behind 
and continue to teach the Bible, even the Taliban, right? There's some pastors having Bible studies for the Taliban. And I, I would like to think that this would take a strong sense of calling to stay and some amazing courage and some extreme trust in the Lord. And, and listen, fellow elders, fellow church leaders, and fellow future church leaders and elders and ministry leaders, keep this in mind. We may be called to this. The time may come. Next, we read that there, there was a great lamentation over Stephen at his burial, which is a reminder that those who are martyred are, or at least ought to be, mourned by the church. Now, surely not on their own behalf, because the, you know, the, these people have gone on to be face-to-face with the Lord. I mean, that's our end goal, right? That, that's, that's the end game. That's our long game. That's what we want, is to be face-to-face with the Lord. But the, but the loss to their family, the loss to the church, and the loss to the world that they witness to ought to be lamented. And certainly there, there was an element to their mourning that, you know, because of how he was taken away. I mean, Stephen, was, he was unjustly murdered by the hands of wicked people. And, and I just want to encourage you, church, please, please don't forget to mourn for those who are suffering for their faith, for those who are dying daily, for those who are enduring persecution daily. Think about them daily. Pray for them daily. They need it. They need our prayers. They ask for our prayers. And one day the time may come when we're asking for theirs. I want you to remember this. That's why I'm saying it loudly. Pray daily for those who are enduring persecution and do your best to empathize. To to, to put yourselves in their shoes because, again, we want others to pray for us. When we get to that point. But scripture teaches us, says, mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Okay, uh, let's continue. Luke says that Saul began dragging Christians from their homes and putting them in prison. So, so Christ followers were being arrested and imprisoned because they, they didn't identify with the world. They identified instead with Jesus. They identified with Jesus and because of that, they were called out. They were arrested. They were thrown in jail. And note... It doesn't specify that these folks were like standing on the street corner, you know, with a bullhorn and, and a sandwich sign. You know, they weren't, they weren't yelling at the people. They, these believers were sitting peacefully in their homes, and then the door gets kicked open, and in comes this angry man who is totally bent on putting them through, through terrible suffering because he wants them to deny Christ. That's awful. That's an awful thing to consider. And, and we know, church, this very thing is happening today in the world. It's happening. It's taking place. What would you do? I mean, uh, seriously, think about this. And I want to just say this. Obviously, self-defense and defense of one's family, especially in America, that immediately comes to mind. And hopefully you're, you're aware that, that we in America, we are given some, some rights in the Constitution. These are not necessarily reflected in the New Testament. I'm going to say that. But I believe we have to consider these situations so that we know what to do for the sake of conscience before we have to deal with them so that we don't make a split-second decision that we later regret. Okay, so I'm going to suggest this. Um, is self-defense appropriate for the Christian? I think most of the time it is. I think even more often, it's appropriate for the Christian to defend his or her own family, including the family of believers. 
there are laws on the books in our country here that make it clear that we are in the right to defend ourselves against someone who wishes us harm. But then you say that and you say, well, what about in the Sermon on the Mount? You'll have to go back and listen to when I taught from Luke about that. Um, but at the same time, there are, there are stipulations in our law. I just want to put this out there too. You, know, you might want to turn off the camera. No, I'm kidding. But there are stipulations in our laws for when the enforcers of the law are the ones breaking the law. Let that one hang there for a second, okay? But when it comes to persecution, specifically because of one's faith in Jesus Christ, there will be other factors at play. Because here's the truth, okay? If you go almost anywhere in the world that Christians are being tormented, you can rest assured that that persecution is at the very least government-sanctioned and at worst government-sponsored. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, why is he going there, okay? Because it's not exactly part of the text. I'm, I'm going to admit that. It's not. But it's certain that this is the case. And there's other, there's other passages in the book of Acts that show that that was the case here. That's what's happening here. In chapter 26, when the Apostle Paul is talking about his time of persecuting Christians, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison... After receiving authority from the chief priests. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the high priest, the chief priests. Now, you may remember that Paul was a Pharisee, okay, and the chief priests were Sadducees. And that is two very different theological schools of thought that are, that are typically at odds with each other. And that's how much they hated Christians. They were willing to work together to rid themselves of Christ's followers, okay? Just like they, they worked together to get rid of Jesus himself. And I bring this up because I, I think it's important to note. There's almost never individually sponsored persecution of Christianity that goes anywhere. I mean, you may have a, a hostile location where you have like an occasional mob in a place where Christians aren't protected. Uh, even, for instance, in India, Christian, uh, the Christian faith and Christians are protected by the Indian Constitution, and yet it's not being enforced right now, okay? But the worst persecution against Christians is always a result of becoming enemies of the state. And this is part of the reason that, that Marxist socialism and anything associated with it are so frequently rejected by Christians that hold to orthodoxy. Okay? It's not so much that just that they're wrong, it's that it opens the door for so much evil. Marxist philosophy has, has resulted in more murders of Christians in the 20th century than the previous 19 centuries combined. And the 21st century is on track right now to surpass that. Remember, friends, remember me saying this, okay? I preached a little over a year ago on Romans 13, okay, and how the church has a civic duty in response to governmental authority. And, and I just want to say this. You can go back and listen to that. That was on July 5th of last year. It's still on our website if you want to go listen to that. 
But there are some implied exceptions to the rule that are contained in that passage. And it looks, let me just say it this way. If it looks like the time is coming for disobedience, you can expect a message on that or several. Okay? Just be ready. Just be ready. And be ready to bail me out of jail if you have to. Just I'm just saying it. Anyway, for time's sake, we're going to press on. Uh, we've looked at Jerusalem, at what times God chosen people. Uh, they, were, they were friendly to the gospel until it interfered with the ruling class. And then they tried to stamp it out. That's fairly common. Uh, but now we're going to talk about another city, Samaria. Anybody remember where Samaria came from? Well, then I'll tell you. It used to be the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. You guys probably remember that. Uh, it, it became its own nation when the kingdom of, of Israel divided under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Uh, and after a couple of centuries of, of almost entirely like horrible leadership, terrible kings, uh, God sent the Assyrians to entirely annihilate Israel and carry off its people. And then for the next you know, six centuries or so, uh, you got the ten tribes of Israel that belonged to the northern kingdom. They were basically bred out of existence by intermingling with the Assyrians. And then by the first century, Samaria and the whole region was repopulated by what were considered by the Jewish people to be half-breeds. And so the Jews treated them like human garbage because they weren't real Jews from Judea, right? And in fact, they would have been considered Gentile sinners by most people in Jerusalem because they would have, they would have had Gentile males mixed into their bloodlines. And so they were looked down on. The, the God, God's people looked down on them because they weren't pure-blooded Jews and because they didn't worship properly. But amazingly enough, God, God doesn't really care about someone else's opinion of who he created, does he? God doesn't care what we think about someone. That doesn't affect God's opinion of that person. Okay? And God chose to allow these, these half-breed, non-Jewish folks, he, he gave them an opportunity to hear the gospel. Because as Luke writes, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Well, of course they did. Right? That is one of the great, uh, the most wonderful, unintended consequences of cracking down on Christianity. Right? Whenever a government steps in and says, we're going to stomp this out, you know, they scatter. They go off and then they, they, they spread the gospel. And so persecution spreads the gospel. Remember that from last week. You might remember the, the story of stepping on the spider. I'm not going to tell it again. But, uh, and, and just, you recall from a few minutes ago how God used persecution to get the salt out of the shaker, right? Well, when we Christians, when we get too comfortable in our own little sphere, I think sometimes God makes us uncomfortable so that we'll leave that sphere and we'll spread salt. To the places where it's needed. Now, this is this is something I believe we're seeing today in many places of the, in the world. I, I think it's interesting if you look at history, just how often God does this. Uh, Vody Bauckham, some of you guys know who he is, uh, and, and several others have pointed out that that when the church was brand new, Jerusalem was the hub of Christianity, but that hub has geographically shifted multiple times in history. I mean, for a while it was in Jerusalem. But thanks to the persecution there, it spread to other areas in the Middle East and Northern Africa. And then later it spread into Asia Minor and parts of Europe. And then it became centralized in Rome for a while before spreading into what is now, you know, Europe Major, I guess you could say. And that became the main hotbed of Christianity for about a millennia. 
And then America became colonized and in over a few hundred years, we have arguably become the world center for Christian missions and for, for church growth. But what's the case now? I mean, now Jerusalem is mainly Hasidic, Jewish, and secular. And the Middle East and Northern Africa are predominantly Muslim. And Rome is mainly Catholic, which is, is basically Christianity that's been syncretized with pagan tradition. And Europe is, is almost entirely sec secularized. And now America is headed down the same path. This is nothing new. It's certainly been accelerated. <laughs> but American Christianity has been on a downward trend since before I was born. You know, and and, and most, most of you probably know that. Because there was a time... There was a time when almost everyone would consider themselves Christian. That doesn't mean they were. You know, being in church, it's just like the saying, being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than jumping in the ocean makes you a fish. But the fact is, most people at least had some semblance of a Judeo-Christian ethic less today. You know where Christianity is growing the most? In the far and Middle East. Uh-huh. In China. In Iran? Isn't that amazing? The church is growing in those places the most. Guys, persecution and secularization is often God's way of getting the salt out of the shaker. All right, let's keep reading. Um, Philip, remember him because he comes back around later too. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, in other words, demons, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now, now here, here's what happened in one city, right, as a result of persecution in another city. Firstly, Christ is proclaimed. Now, there, there are a couple things to consider about this. First, I want you to bear in mind, Jesus had actually been through this area already about a year and a half before. You remember that? And the first recorded person who'd ever been told by Jesus Christ himself that he was the Messiah was from that part of the world. It was the Samaritan woman at the well. So there had been some, some seeds planted regarding who Jesus was. He was the Christ, the Son of the living God. For, for Philip to come along then and talk about not just who Jesus was, but what God did through him. You know, forgiving the sins of the world through his sacrificial death and raising him from the dead. That was the rest of that message they've been waiting for. That was the rest of the gospel. And so in a sense, they had been prepared. But in another sense, it was still virgin territory for the full story of Jesus. And so it's an obvious place for Christ to be proclaimed. And I want you to just please allow me to quickly make a connection here to our lives. No matter who you are, no matter where you go, you can be certain that God has not sent you somewhere that he has not already been at work preparing the soil. God has been at work before you got there. And so whoever and wherever you are, expect to be given opportunities to proclaim Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to be due to persecution that you end up there. I mean, it might be because you got a new job. It might be uh, you're in a new class or in a new school. It could be that you moved to a new neighborhood. Whatever. It, you've been given a new sphere of influence in which to proclaim Christ. Not just Christian morality. Okay? Not just whatever political stance you think might be reflected of Jesus. But proclaiming Christ. That's what Philip did. And notice here what happens, okay? 
God had given Philip the power, or, or at least the authority, to perform miraculous signs. And Luke says that people listen as a result of the evidence. Okay? Take a quick drink while you're writing that down. This is a really important point. So please pay attention to this, okay? Nudge the person next to you if they're nodding off, all right? <laughs> Most of us will probably not be given the power and authority to do miracles, at least not on a regular basis, okay? But God, in his grace, does give his church ample evidence, ample, that people should be able to look to that will give them a desire to listen and believe. And I wanted to use the, the examples given here and see if there can be, can be parallels, okay, in our current experience in the church. For, first, Luke says that Stephen was driving out demons. Now, I, I know, first of all, that was absolutely happening, okay? That wasn't a euphemism for just helping people that were sick. He was driving out demons, all right? Now, this has been sensationalized to some degree through, through movies and TV and in popular culture, you know. Uh, in scripture, though, we never hear of incantations and holy water and the, you know, power of Christ compels you. You know, we, we don't see that stuff in, in the scripture, okay? We simply see Jesus or his apostles commanding the demons out and they go. Doesn't take magic. The authority is in the name of Jesus Christ. And I've heard many, many stories of, of demonic possession and even exorcism from a lot of people, uh, many of them people that I trust. My dad has some really powerful stories. I, I believe some of them, uh, th of these stories are true. I, I'm, probably not every story that you hear is going to be true, but some of them are. And, and, and that's not, this is not a typical American Christian experience, I, although... <laughs> Well, the more our society goes on, it's not in a, a, a slippery slope, it's more of in a free fall at this point, but the, the more downhill our society goes, the less subtle Satan is. Have you noticed that? The church of Satan's right out there right now. It's just going, hey, look at us. Come and join our church. We'll have a religious exemption so you can get an abortion. I mean, Satan is really active now, but back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, he's a little bit more subtle, right? Right? I think that the, the less subtle Satan is the more we start to see the kind of things that they had going on here in the New Testament. But anyway, uh, we don't usually see this in American Christianity. We don't, we don't often participate in exorcism. It does happen today in tribal societies, but we do have a nation, listen, we have a nation full of people that need freedom from possession. And that is one thing that Christ offers, and the church can hold it out as fruit of the gospel and if you're not sure what I mean, just, just consider the awful state of addiction. There's so many people are mired in drug addiction, alcohol addiction, sex addiction, porn addiction. Yeah, I mean, we have all these, uh, these terrible addictions. This, this, this is where the sin nature inside a person corrupts to the point where they are totally dependent on something destructive. And this, this is an internal state that manifests itself externally. So many people in our country are hooked on something they can't stop because they don't have the willpower to do so and because they don't know Jesus. And friends, Jesus can set them free from addiction. You want to hear stories? There are stories. People are trying to hide them, but there are stories. 
1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 makes it very clear that there are people that were hooked on drink, people that were hooked on, on homosexual activity that God set free. They were sanctified. That means they were made holy. They turned away from their sins. They repented of their sins because of Christ. Friends, Jesus can set people free from addiction. He can and he does. In a similar way to possession, people that are addicted are, are slaves to this, this internal self-destructive force. But through faith, God gives a person his Holy Spirit and they can change. So, friends, listen. When, when people see an addict who, who is able to, to reject their addiction and find freedom in Christ, that is visual evidence that he is who he claimed to be and that his power really does overcome sin. And that draws people. When they see that, it draws them. In the second case, Philip healed the paralyzed and the lame. Now, these are folks, they were in their right mind, but they were crippled. They were handicapped in some way because they couldn't overcome their circumstances. They were paralyzed. They were lame. And I believe that, and forgive me, I realize this is a stretch a little bit here, but, but I believe the church today can help the world find freedom from oppression. I think that's part of what we're called to do. I mean, there, there are millions, maybe billions of people in the world today who are incapable of caring for themselves, not because they aren't able-bodied, okay, but because they don't have the tools, they, they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the support system, and that sometimes they're under an oppressive government. And that's another way that we as the church can show evidence that we're proclaiming a Savior that changes people. That's by helping people get past the, the oppression that they're struggling with. We help to show the freedom in Christ. You know, just, like, just like when a person is freed from addiction, to see a person that used to be kind of drifting through life, you know, haplessly and helplessly, and suddenly they find purpose. Suddenly they, 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 find a, a, they live a life of service and love. They go from, from being totally just floating around useless to suddenly having a purpose in Christ. That draws people too. That's a huge change. And the result of hearing the word of truth and, and seeing, seeing Philip's ministry was that it drew in crowds of folks who began to believe, and Scripture says there was much joy in that city. That's a nice closing line, isn't it? There was much joy in that city. It sounds good. It sounds like a place where you'd want to be, right? A joyful city. So let me ask you this, friends. Where do you see this today? You see it in Jerusalem. You see it in Samaria. You see it in America. It's not that cut and dried yet, is it? Do we see joy in the city? Listen, guys, almost done. God is still doing a work in us. As his people, right here where we are, even, even here in, in McKinney, Texas, in America. And I'd like to encourage you not to lose hope. God is still working in you. He's still working in us. In fact, I have a final question for you. This is, this is based on something my friend Sam said to me the other day, and I thought it was profound. Church, are we looking back to the garden? I mean, is that our main focus? Or are we just fretting and, and groaning about sin and the fallenness of the world and, 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 you know, and just comparing how great things used to be versus how messed up they are today? Or are we looking forward to the city? Because there is a city. You know what I'm talking about, friends? The city, capital T, capital C, 
the city of God, heaven, the final, the final dwelling place for all those who are in Jesus Christ, who belong to him. This, this brings us back to, to last week's you know, story of Stephen. It reminds us, set our sights and our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God because that is what we're striving toward. That is our promised land. And we proclaim Christ because we want to see as many people there as possible. Amen? We want to see as many people there as possible. It's really not a tale of two cities. Ultimately, it's about one. It's about one. So whether you find yourself today feeling like you're, you're in Jerusalem or whether you're in Samaria, the fact is only those who are in Christ Jesus will make it to that city. Only those who are in Christ Jesus are going to make it to the eternal city in the presence of God. So ask yourself today, ask yourself, am I bound for that city?